Welcome to this episode of the Kuiper Collective Podcast. And once again, I'll be your host, Jeff Fisher, academic dean and a professor of theology at Kuiper College. This is week four of our discussion on the book, From Lament to Advocacy, Black Religious Education and Public Ministry. Now, the Kuiper College faculty committed to reading through and discussing this book throughout the summer. Now, if you've listened to our previous episodes during this podcast as we've discussed this book, you'll know that we found it to be very relevant uh, particularly timely to what is happening in the U.S. right now with regard to racism and to our own work as educators in Christian higher education. And, and this chapter, again, uh, continues to challenge us and cause us to think and uh, reflect. Now, one of the main reasons that we chose this particular book among the numerous great resources out there addressing racism and matters in the black community is because one of our own teaching faculty, Dr. Rochelle White, uh, wrote a chapter in this book. So we'll get to that chapter in a couple weeks. So you'll have to still wait a little bit for that one. This week, we're discussing chapter three, religious education and communities of learning and practice, inspiring advocacy in public ministry. So once again, the title alone sounds quite fitting to what we aim to do at Kuiper College, be a community of learning and practice that inspires advocacy in public ministry. Um, but there's some unique elements in this chapter in particular that I think are very worth discussing. This chapter is authored by Dr. Mary H. Young. She's the Director of Leadership Education for the Association of Theological Schools, um, more commonly known in seminary and graduate school circles as ATS, located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She earned her MDiv from Virginia Union and her education doctorate from Union Theological Seminary and Presbyterian School of Christian Education. And like me, her undergraduate is in mathematics. Uh, so I knew I'd like this chapter. Uh, Dr. Mary Young is also ordained in the American Baptist churches. Um, so again, before we start our conversation on this chapter, I'd like to invite our other participants to introduce themselves. Rochelle White. Professor of Youth Ministry, Director of Youth Ministry Leadership Internships. Kelly Hoffman, Professor of Social Work and Director of Field Practicum at Kuiper College. And Sarah Beam, I'm the Registrar here at Kuiper College. Thank you, it's great to have all of you here to talk about this chapter and this book and how it's impacting and shaping our thinking about our, our various vocations. Uh, and once again, I'll make the disclaimer that these are not necessarily the views of Kuiper College, uh, but that, that we are having a conversation here and um, that there may be things that we say that are, are part of this learning process. And so we want to be, to be open to that as well. So to this chapter, this chapter centers on the role of faith communities uh, that are intergenerational, that focus on the integration of learning and practice, which results in action. And specifically in this context, have the intended outcome of advocacy against injustices. Um, and one of the phrases that, that I've captured here is that the black church seeks to be, quote, a community of the faithful whose belief is put into action. And so this chapter really addresses that as kind of the main subject and then digs into a lot of different uh, aspects of this. Uh, so I want to start our conversation by, by asking a question related to how Dr. Young starts this chapter. Um, she, she notes that we live in a society with complex network of communities. Um, and so this is particularly focusing on being a community of learning, um, but she provides us numerous overlapping, intersecting communities that each of us belongs to. 
some based on uh, different aspects of identification, gender, race, ethnicity, religion, culture, subculture, political party, health, all that kind of stuff. Some based on geography, where we live, our local, state, national. Some based on themes, like favorite sports teams or fashion. Uh, and some based on communication mode, like social media or being public or interpersonal, relational kind of communication. What, if anything, do you find helpful about her way of, of defining, describing, articulating what it means to be community, and particularly this complexity that each and every one of us belongs to really multiple communities? I think it sets up the context and community from a broad perspective, in that it's more than just race. Yeah. Because oftentimes when we think of community, we think of race, culture, that type of thing. But looking at it, as I'll say, from the seven dimensions of diversity and beyond, it shows us that we are in a community or multiple communities that in all of those communities affect our identities. So what I'm thinking that she's doing is setting up for us to um, frame our existence in community according to our identity, which is mm -hmm. multiple identities. And it really gives us a broader view of where like we're looking from an education perspective our students aren't just hyper college students our students just aren't their race they aren't their denomination of the church they really are connected to so many different things that we might not even be aware of and the same thing with myself i'm in different communities maybe my students aren't aware of and so it kind of gives me a pause to make sure i'm looking at the whole person versus just what i have on paper what i have in front of me and trying to navigate how those different influences of the different communities can really play into the worldview of students and how they might respond to different methods or um, conversations. I think it's, it's really helpful. I found it helpful in thinking about this complexity of each and every person that we interact with. And like you mentioned, Kelly, there are students in particular. Um, it shaped the way that we view ourselves and others. And so this chapter is particularly about now zeroing in on some of the intersecting aspects of a faith community, Christian faith in particular, but then also more specifically the black community of faith um, that Young describes on page 62 as having a distinctive communal character. Um, and that communal character has, has centered on discipleship in the midst of oppression and injustice throughout its history. I, I, I find this very helpful to see this kind of Yes, the people in the black church community of faith have this kind of overlapping segment, but are also in a lot of these other different communities as well. And so they're, they're bring, everyone's bringing in those different kind of elements and aspects, but yet kind of zeroing in on what is particular to uh, the black community of faith. So my question now at this point is, I asked this last time to those who are on the podcast episode, how have you maybe, I mean, stereotype might be the, the, the less helpful word, but how have you kind of perceived what the black community of faith looked like? And Rochelle, I mean, you can certainly express this perhaps better than any of the rest of us. How would you kind of characterize what the black community of faith or, or describe the black community of faith um, and maybe identify whether Young is giving a, a pretty good accurate picture of that? I think categorizing the black community of faith as a whole 
is not necessarily one-sided or one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. Because with the Black community of faith, particularly in denominational perspectives, there are so many different communities of faith within the community of faith. Right. Yeah. So you have the Pentecostal, you have the Baptist, you have the Methodist. You know, you have the reform circles, you know, so there's so many differences in the black faith community, you know, just because a church community is African American doesn't mean that they all worship the same, or that Mm -hmm. they all do discipleship the same, or that they all do evangelism the same, you know, so there's multiple identities within the black church as well. So I think that's key to highlight that, and not just cast a blanket perspective that the black church community is one dimensional. Yeah. And I mean, and she notes that here that it's it's not like any of this is monolithic, that there's this kind of one dimensional piece. I think that like if you want to be talking about like this, this stereotype and how that's not necessarily a helpful word, but kind of thinking of my own perspective and kind of some of my lack of knowledge of what the black faith community looks like. My limited experience, I went to a Kojic church um, one time during college and my frame of reference was that it's very charismatic. It's a longer church service than our my very structured background of CRC, where you have 55 minutes and you have you follow the very strict um, order of events during church, and so it was very different. And so I'm glad the book kind of gives us pause. Like just because you have that one experience with a certain denomination does not mean that's a blanket overview of every single denomination in the Black faith community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of, oh, again, these overlapping communities that people are a part of. And I mean, the denominational distinctives, I think, are, are quite significant when we're talking about the black church. So, so Young uses this, this language of double consciousness to refer to the black faith community. And it, it, it comes back again a couple of times and then is part of the summary at the end of the chapter to refer to the black community as having two foci, so or two a- areas of emphasis. Um, so while there is this unique mix, at least from her perspective, um, there's kind of these two revolving foci of individual salvation, or she calls that piety as well, and protest. Um, that later in the chapter, the, the term she uses enslavement, um, but earlier in the chapter is addressing um, oppression and injustices, and is a way that the black faith community kind of in general, and maybe, I mean, this is the, where I'm leading my question, uh, at a core, at a, you know, some, what, what overlaps, what's in the, in the center of the Venn diagram. Uh, this is the way the black community of faith um, tries to address the perennial question of, is it the purpose or the mission of the church to save souls or to transform social order? And the response here is that the double consciousness idea is it's it's not an either or it's a both and maybe for rochelle do you see that as a helpful summary of again kind of this overlapping center or this overlapping she uses the word foci of these different black communities of faith um that that sees this as yes there is piety and transformation of social order and then kelly i'll ask you the question about the predominantly white church following that i think with um, the double consciousness, consciousness that Dr. Young talks about um, as piety and protest, again, it's as different as the number of Black churches you have. 
because there are a significant number of black churches that can that do the double consciousness. They're pious, interested in salvation, and they're also interested in protest or prop or prophetic, the prophetic yeah. nature of the church. And they do that well. And then there are some black churches that are strictly engaged in piety, individual salvation. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like almost as otherworldly type of religion. Yeah. You know, that it's like, okay, well, we, we're going to get saved and we're going to go to heaven. And this is the way, this is what our focus is. We're on our way to heaven. You know, we're not looking at, or we're not necessarily interested in that part or that prophetic part of the ministry. So again, it's very varied, um, as varied as black church is, you know, what church focuses on. Yeah. However, I think the whole, the both and is extremely helpful and necessary to live out our Christian calling. That's what I was going to ask you. So Young definitely seems to be emphasizing that the churches that only focus on the piety are not quite sufficient. Like there actually needs to be this aspect, the second part of the double consciousness that moves toward transformation of social order and not just the focus on going to heaven. And what I was going to ask is, what do you think about that? Is she right? I mean, would you say, yes, that needs, that needs to be a, a piece of that? Yes, the both end is as absolutely necessary. Um, <clears throat> because we look at the whole concept of salvation, which then moves us to sanctification. And sanctification helps us to, I'm going to put it in the reform worldview, to yeah. restore humanity, right? Yeah. And so to do that, you can't just be focused on salvation if we're going to move toward restoration or yeah. consummation, whatever you want to term it on that particular day. Right. Um, but I think the both and is necessary. And like I said, some churches, black churches I've seen do it extremely well. And then there are others that do it not so well. Because maybe their focus is not on the transformation of society. But we just want to make sure that our members are on their way to heaven. Right, right. And, I mean, if you've read Color of Compromise or other similar books, there's a whole history to why there's that kind of focus in some Black communities of faith that is really only about personal salvation mm -hmm. um, and not some of this social order transformation. So I have a, a different experience. Um, with our church overseas, um, they yeah. had to be very careful because uh, although it was a church for expatriates, non-nationals, um, they had to be really careful about what they could speak into, into culture and especially politics. So the church that we, that we engaged in was very, I mean, the, the motto of the church, even written on the mugs that we all got, was do what Jesus is doing. But it was doing it one-on-one -on -one and in your own self. It didn't have anything to do with the broader culture. It didn't have anything to do with, um, with what was going on politically or uh, internationally, which I, I felt like it was always like your hands were kind of tied because of what you could talk about in church. And I feel like that also has something to do with where you are and how much you feel like you have any kind of control over your surroundings, right? So then you get into this, the dynamic of a locus of control. Are you completely helpless in where you're at? Mm -hmm. Or do you feel like you actually do have some kind of power to be able to change the place 
that you're at and what's going on there. Yeah, I think that's a it's a really good point and helps you know remind us again that th this this book and this chapter is really contextualized to the black church in the United States in our given situation. And while, you know, as a theologian, I want to do like ecclesiology at the macro level and have this kind of like, what does the church exist for? There's definitely um, different contexts and realities that each local church and each individual church is going to have to deal with. Um, and I think, you know, Sarah, your comments about the voices and the you know, what kind of power or what kind of perception of power do you even have? This book, I think, is helping me, at least, and maybe others as well, realize that uh, the Black church is trying to helpfully, constructively, theologically gain some of that voice and power that has, has wrongfully been taken from them, removed from them. And and this is kind of internal strategic ways that they can talk among themselves to, I mean, advocate for and to promote that voice in that kind of transformation thing. And that some of us who are not part of predominantly black faith communities also get to listen in and ask the question, how do we help support them getting those, that voice that they need? That's what I kept thinking as I was reading this chapter, especially when she referenced that one of the components is that enslavement component. Mm -hmm. And I think about how my experience in a predominantly white church, I, I don't think there were many people of color in the church. And if they were, they were adopted into a white family. Mm -hmm. um, that it almost felt like the approach was more of that Messiah complex of, we want to save souls, but we are also going to come in and save people from their poor situations or their un unfortunate events in life or whatever. And I, I think about how they would frame that in youth groups, on mission trips, mm -hmm. where we would go on them. We would be going into an urban setting and you'd spend five days there. You'd get, you'd get that feel-good endorphin of doing something, but you were almost... I almost looking back now feel like it was more to make us feel good than really helping a community who really needed it. And so where is that voice that we really needed to hear of if we want to go into a community and help who, who is helping us understand what the community needs? Are we making assumptions or are we really sitting back and listening? And I feel like this is, that is the huge piece that, I missed out in growing up and I still don't see all the time in some faith communities either. I mean, I have several mission trip stories that are very similar and just kind of this irony of the, the, the historically oppressive people with the privilege and power coming into a community, telling them what they should be doing and not even asking the question, what is the most helpful for us to do? And then getting a picture of you and the people you're serving and putting it up on your Instagram right. and be like, look what I did. Like, oh, it makes me so frustrated when I see those now. But mm -hmm. I did that when I was in in that same age group. And so it that education piece of like, oh my goodness, what are we exploiting is for me so frustrating at this in this current environment. Yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly resonates with what she's talking about in this chapter and what, is in, what has been in previous chapters, too, of that, that need to dialogue 
that need to give voice to those who have, have historically not had uh, the voices being heard. I'm glad you're here, Rochelle, because when I was reading the chapter, I had so many questions that I was like, <laughs> I feel like your voice needs to be heard on this because you have more context than I do. So when you think about like kind of that organization of mission trips or um, different faith communities who are predominantly white going into like an urban setting to help with good intentions, have you seen that have a negative impact in the community or do the intentions often shine through even if they're not exactly spot on? Well, I'll talk a little bit about how I've seen missions evolve from my own perspective in my okay. own life. So I see um, the first thing about missions that irritated me was that when everyone went overseas, as if there was no help needed in the United States mm -hmm. and urban communities in particular. So that was the first thing I had to work through. Why are, I'm gonna you know, specify, why are white people going to help people overseas and not help people in their communities who mm -hmm. need help or in communities who need help. So I had to work through that. Then when I saw more white mission groups doing work in urban cities, then I had to say, did they even find out what we needed? You know, or they just showed up and said, well, this is what we're going to give you. And you should be grateful for that. Kind of that savior complex again. Right. So I remember one time seeing someone with a t-shirt on that said, for God so loved Baltimore. It was a white student. For, for, and it was a mission group. For God so loved Baltimore that he sent me. Oh, wow. <laughs> no way. Yeah. The, it was a yellow shirt with purple writing. For God so loved Baltimore on the front that he sent me wow. on the back. <laughs> That's like, yeah. The epitome of savior complex. Like it's written right on your shirt. And so it's, you know, I, I'm not seeing, I'm sure it has been helpful, but because I'm not privy to all mission groups going to all urban areas, I can't say, but in my limited experience in the cities that I've lived in, I can't say that it's been particularly helpful. But I have seen it on the other time. If you don't look at like mission trips, I've seen how actually some of our students have been transformed by making it a point to mm -hmm. work in the urban environment here in Grand Rapids. Mm -hmm. And they've become listeners and they've become humble and they have placed themselves at the feet of leadership of black churches because that's what they know that they need to do mm -hmm. if they're going to be the disciple that God calls them to be. So if, aside from mission trips, I've actually seen students Kuiper students who've gone into the urban setting and have done well there yeah, because they've become listeners and they've become humble. I mean, there's lots of research out there. Dr. Hogaboom, I'm sure could say even more about this, that short-term mission trips are often more beneficial to the ones who go than the ones who are receiving them. And that, you know, kind of one of the main positive outcomes is the taste for more long-term missions and intercultural or cross-cultural ministry and life that's not colonization kind of missions from the past. So, I mean, there are some positive benefits to it, but that we have to be more clear on, on what it is that we're doing with those kind of missions. 
So not to just circle back to this, but the double consciousness thing, I, I really like the language and the, the question, I mean, I have to address it in my theology classes. It, you know, what's the purpose of the church? Dr. Parler has to address it in the mission of the church. Course. For the those of us in the more predominantly white church, the answer to is it saving souls or transforming the community? In the Reformed tradition, we would we would also say, yes, it's both. It's not an either or. But would we maybe answer the the second part of the question different of what it means to transform society or social order, would we answer that differently than what kind of the core or the foci of black communities of faith would answer that as? I feel like, the, depending again, kind of like Rochelle has repeated, the specific church and kind of how it's manifested in their mission statement, how they um, kind of implement that but i feel like without that listening posture it's almost impossible to transform communities um because there's just no self-determination with the community itself and they i think they talked about self-determination a little mm -hmm. bit i think in this chapter it's in one of the chapters um yeah she doesn't use that term but it that concept is certainly there that's what happens when you invite the social worker to the conversation <laughs> you start talking about self-determination right but I, I really, even if the intent of the church is there or um, the institution or whatever we're talking about to transform the community, it might be well-intended, but if there is just no listening to the voice of the community or having the voice present in whatever um, strategy might be putting in place, it's, I don't know if you can truly call it transformation or is it colonization again? Yeah. But again, it depends on like the church, like how are they coming from that humble posture? Do they have a diversity of voices? Do they have community voices involved um, to really see how that plays out? And, and, and if you're in a neighborhood or a geographical community where there isn't poverty, there isn't violence, there isn't quote unquote problems, because they're obviously problems, what is transforming a upper middle class suburban community even look like when everyone's kind of already living the good life? Why would we transform anything? We like it the way it is. So as long as you can kind of isolate and ignore that there's other neighborhoods and other communities that aren't living the good life, what does that even look like? Um, and I, I mean, to me, that's a critique of the kind of the, the broadly evangelical Protestant white, predominantly white church in the U.S. is that, I mean, especially when you look at like the history of white flight, where we actually left those communities and moved or planted our churches in areas where there's not going to be those kind of cries of injustice and oppression because we left those areas. Right. I, I feel like this is just a given with white upper and middle class American churches that it is obviously our, their duty to extend this prosperity that we've found mm -hmm. because we are the blessed ones who have fallen under God's grace. I, I feel like the white church that I have experienced finds itself in this good place and looks at everybody else next door to us or across the ocean and says, you need to be a believer like me because mm -hmm. this is where the good thing is. And so they want to you know, it's like manifest destiny, I feel like all over again, all it, like it's, it's a given, it's, it's an automatic in 
in what we train and what we do that we're in the good place, others are not. We need to teach them how to be in this good place just like we are. I, I think that we haven't articulated it very well, um, but I think that it's, it's very, very much there. And it, it seems to me, at least in my experience, that we've, while doing that, we've said, as long as, like, you sound like us, you act like us, you talk like us, you vote like us, you sing like us, you don't dance and clap like we don't dance and clap until, you know, the Pentecostal movement invaded all that stuff. And I, I think you're right. So, I mean, this kind of leads into my next question. Um, it's interesting to me that in one of the relational identification portions, Dr. Young uses the term covenantal um, to refer to black community of faith. Covenantal is a term that we use in the reform tradition, but I don't think it has, these two things have the same meaning. I wanna read a quote here. She says that this covenantal identity has continued to have implications for relationships beyond the faith community that include social reform and justice seeking efforts. From my experience in the European based, predominantly white US church, covenantal as an identifier has more often referred to our inward turning exclusion of other social organizations, things outside the church, um, isolation more, kind of a protective way of doing things rather than what she's talking about here as an outward facing relationships beyond the faith community and including social reform and justice seeking efforts. And Rochelle, you know, I'd be interested in your comments on um, her use of this word covenantal and what you think she's really trying to drive at here. As I understand um, Dr. Young's meaning of the word covenantal, I look at more like an agreement between people, you know, not so much an inward um, expression, but more that we are a covenant people, you know, under God. Mm -hmm. I think she uses it in that term, in that way, that mm -hmm. we are a covenant people under God and we're committed to these things. And being committed to these things, they are outside of ourselves for the betterment of the community. So that's how I interpreted what she's so, saying. Yeah, so covenant as this kind of connector to people and peoples of all different communities, really, that extends beyond that. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. That's what she's saying. I find it intriguing that in my experience, the way those in the Reformed and Presbyterian traditions have used the term covenantal, it's more the intra-connectedness of those of us within the circle of Reformed or Presbyterian are covenanted to each other in kind of an isolating, like we're in this together, but the world is out there against us, mm -hmm. rather than in what she's describing here as we're in this together and we're seeking to connect with other groups and peoples to work to transform society. That would probably be my knee-jerk reaction when I hear the covenantal language is kind of that chosen people we and baptized into the faith and now here we are we have arrived and i think it plays into some of the conversation in the book too about how um, they're talking about the communities of learning really need to emphasize to um, the younger people in the black faith community their value and that they are they have worth now not 
in the here and now, because it kind of talked about often we mm -hmm. focus in like that restoration piece when we get to heaven, we are going to be, that's where our worth and hallelujah comes from. But like, no, everybody has the worth and dignity now. And I, I wonder if people read that covenantal language and misinterpret it and kind of have some like un assumed like judgments or biases mm -hmm. that oh, I'm not good enough because I haven't gotten there because of my race because of my socioeconomical status um I'd be wonder it'd just be interesting for someone who doesn't have that like reformed I don't want to say conditioning what I've grown up with my whole life if it would read different to somebody else one example that I think she uses um or that can be used to understand the whole covenant is on page 72 when she says the covenant with black America, mm -hmm. um, which was a written as a roadmap to remind the black community of its responsibility to create a sustainable and just world for successive generations. In the document, professionals from varied fields address issues of healthcare, public education, the justice system, community policing, affordable neighborhoods, democratic processes, immigrant roots, jobs, wealth, and economic prosperity, environmental justice, and the racial divide. So I think when she talks about covenant, that's an example yeah. of how she uses it. You know, that's yeah. a grand scale document that was written. Yeah. But faith communities can do the same, create the same type of um, document for them to be guided by in their ministry and discipleship. So I see this as a good example of how that's a different use of covenant than what I'm used to a better use, I would say, of covenant. So mark that. Um, because like those are kind of the opposites of what the covenant community in the predominantly Presbyterian reform tradition is. Like we're covenanting as a community of faith and excluding some of these other things. Like we don't we don't deal with healthcare. Uh, we're not gonna deal with the public education. We're gonna create our own private education. Um, we're not going to worry about affordable neighborhoods, all that kind of stuff. Um, so kind of the covenant as insular rather than covenanting with other communities to work together for societal transformation. Um, are there any, any things, any quotes or questions that you wanted to make sure we talk about? I found one on page 70 at the very top when she's actually talking about pedagogy. Mm -hmm. which is my favorite thing to talk about mm -hmm. and do. Um, and it says, Franklin summarizes a politically empowering religious education that was designed to meet the cultural and political needs of a new generation and facilitate the nurture of both Christian and Black identity. These endeavors were often undergirded by materials published by Black religious educators that extended to the educational forums and other practices carried out within churches. Moreover, these practices have tended to incorporate an instructional approach of the leader as coach and dialogue partner, particularly with, with the youth as a means of building self-esteem and agency by acknowledging and honoring their often silenced voices. Yes. It's just like me all day. Yeah, yeah. I would say this is really what we want to be and do as Kuiper College too. Like this is not just, uh, you know, a, a Christian and black identity thing. I think this is also, I mean, it's particular to that, but I think it's also something we want to do as, as Christian educators in general, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we want to 
be coaches with students as dialogical partners and hear from the voices that are often silenced or dismissed. Um, in fact, we make our students listen to those voices because they're silenced and dismissed. So when I was reading that, because that stuck out to me too, like, because it kind of ties back into that fundamental listening principle. Mm -hmm. Thinking of myself in the classroom, so I'm, I'm white. Female is probably the biggest minority status that I mm -hmm. have. And then it talks about like having somebody be a mentor and the coach. And then I have students who have, are come from all different races, different backgrounds. How can I play that coaching role well? If I, is, it, is it best to come from somebody who has the same racial identity? Can I still function in that role if I come from a different race? Like how can I, my question was like, how can I do that well um, given who I am as a person? And that's, I didn't have an answer. I just kind of sat yeah. in it. So I, I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that. Well, Kelly, I would offer that you exercise cultural humility. You know about that. Mm -hmm. You so know, letting the other person be the expert of their own reality. Mm -hmm. And then you you taking the time to listen and ask questions. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's that whole idea of being humble, realizing we're not the expert in other people's worlds. Mm -hmm. But each person is their own expert in their own experience. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we learn from them. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, that's such an easy principle. So I'm glad that like, we're not trying to like come up with some sort of like grand scheme to, to implement, like just being humble really does go a long way. This, this is what I constantly wrestle with now. You know, I'm, I don't even have the female as minority. I mean, I am the epitome of the straight white male upper middle class top of the pyramid historically connected to the oppressing group <laughs> so like i'm constantly asking that question and still and i mean that's part of the reason i wanted us to work through this book i also want to use the the status that is granted to me because of the communities that are that i'm a part of and the the life that i was born into did nothing to earn it I want to be able to use that status to help advocate for and promote those who don't get to start with what I get to start with. That's the kind of stuff that I'm wrestling with is like, then what does it practically look like, not just in the classroom, but for my own life and ministry to do that and to do that faithfully. I want to, I want to continue with the, the classroom conversation. So on page 71, and there's the quote, to create a learning community within the classroom the classroom itself should be a place that is life-sustaining and mind-expanding, which our students say happens to them all the time, that we blow their mind and expand their thinking, enabling teachers and students to work together in partnership. I mean, as teachers, as educators, what do you think about that kind of description of what you want, of what the classroom should be? I personally, I love that philosophy of having equal voices. And I found that they actually, I love that philosophy because again, like everyone's coming from that different community and that different perspective. And I might have my whole perspective because I've been in the field and I've known things differently, but I haven't lived everyone's experience and the richness that can come from that dialogue. 
it really can be empowering, I think, for students because then they have a say. It's not just Professor Hoffman telling what I have to think, right. but I'm going to maybe tell Professor Hoffman how she should think and knowing that that's safe enough and okay is there's such a beauty in that. Yeah, but it seems like a flip of what at least my education experience was that it's not we as the experts in the room telling everyone here's what you have to do and here's how to do it but that we're actually in this dialogue and that students actually help shape the class and where it goes depending on their age and, and experience they might have very limited experiences and a lot of times they have not you know had the same kind of training and thinking and operating that we have Mm -hmm. But I think it has to be done with boundaries, too. You can't have whoever just run in their mouth about a certain thing if it's really off-base or disrespectful or not um, helpful to the conversation. I mean, I, there has to be some boundaries with, if you're going to give voices to everybody. But just being able to allow the conversation, I think, again, yeah, I think it just empowers the students. I know I just said that, too, but like it allows them to know that they have value and we're interested in them. Um, yeah. And it kind of goes back again to that whole principle of listening, even though it's a little bit different, but we're listening to what they have to say. And sometimes they have, for me, I found they have better insight or sometimes their ideas because I'm so immersed in what I'm trying to get the mm -hmm. point across that having a fresh perspective can give me pause and it helps kind of just bring a, a different perspective into the into the conversation and this particular quote resonates with me at this season um, as i'm teaching the trauma course online yeah and that i'm able to go back and learn what learn what i learned relearn and reacquaint myself with what i learned in my phd program mm -hmm. because we had a um professor dr katie geneva cannon who taught us to teach that we would craft syllabi, that we would craft assignments, reading assignments and written assignments, that the students would teach themselves what they needed to know. Mm. So that way I'm, yeah. not I'm not lecturing, mm -hmm. but everybody has the same assignment. And what I'm noticing when I'm reading their weekly assignments in the class, everyone is teaching themselves what they want and need to know. And I think it makes for, it's showing me that it's making for a better learning experience, mm -hmm. you know, where everyone is, um, we value everyone's contributions. And that was evident in the discussion board, because I've heard some ideas about discussion boards that haven't been so great. But this actual discussion board that we did, it was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Because they were able to pull out what they needed to know yeah. to help them with where they are in ministry. And Rochelle, you know, I've sat in in your class a few times, and I mean, I, I characterize you as a master at this kind of classroom dialogue. I mean, you you do this so well. You've, you've learned well, and the, this whole dialogical cycle in listening to students helps us continue to be learners ourselves. Mm -hmm. that it, like you said, it helps us relearn the things that we've learned in the past and think about new ways of looking at various things. Is there any... Anything that any of you can help me or us or the listeners bring clarity to what is the role of the church in speaking, and again, contextual, and Kuiper College in particular, 
how can we as a, as a, a faith-based community get better at or improve or do what she's suggesting of focusing on the quality of existence in the present and not just the hope to come, not just, you know, well, believe in Jesus and you get to go to heaven. I mean, Kelly, <laughs> in the social work program, this is probably kind of the core of what you're focusing on. And maybe that's part of our listening from those of us that are in theology mm-hmm. ministry. What, 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 what do you advise us? What can you help us with? Well, that's, I have struggled a little bit with this book just because my context, I, I am not involved in church leadership. I'm involved in religious education, but I don't have as much involvement with church structure or policy making. I've worked in very secular community settings. Um, and so I've observed how the church has attempted to integrate themselves into certain um, nonprofits or social services. And I think the thing that I would challenge those who are in ministry or in a church leadership position or trying to craft some sort of engagement with the community is it's not all about evangelism. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes basic needs need to get met before you can even hear about Jesus. I, I learned, I remember that from intro missions when I took <laughs> it at Kuiper way back in the day that sometimes a person's not going to want to hear that Jesus can save them and, the afterlife and everything's going to be perfect then when I got rent to pay and I don't know how I'm going to get my kids medicine. Sometimes it's focusing on what the community needs. Um, my context is bringing good, um, both physical health services and mental health services to underprivileged communities. And especially with the whole COVID stuff going on, just seeing the disparity between who's been affected more. So you see the people who have, or in poverty, it's yeah. hit um, African-Americans more that to me, the church, I would love the church to see that and be like, okay, maybe these communities don't need more Bible studies or X, Y, and Z. We need to figure out how to partner to give them good resources and better access to healthcare because then the quality of life improves. And then maybe that will help promote change or more interest in the faith community. I think just letting go of, what you want to achieve as a church and really listening to the the community and knowing that bringing a doctor to a community can be just as helpful as bringing a three-point sermon to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see that more because I've had places don't even want to necessarily work with faith-based institutions because they're fearful that the objective will be lost. Right. And so that would be, that would be my advice to someone who's observed it from a social service setting. Yeah. And, you know, I find it interesting that when I have done overseas kind of things, the church and social services, I mean, you reference doctors and things like that have worked together so much more effectively mm-hmm. than what happens here in the U S. And so mm-hmm. there's, there is kind of this like, yeah, polarization or, yeah, there can be that that tension between their. I think of a, an agency in our community. Um, I'll reference Family Promise, where they are working to provide housing to families who are in a homeless situation. And churches will host them. They have a rotation of churches, so they mm-hmm. use the basement of the church to house these families mm-hmm. at night. So it's not like a physical shelter. They they partner with it, and I think that's a beautiful example of. Church has space, community has a need, let's mm-hmm. work together. Yeah. And so just 
being using your resources as a church community to be able to meet the needs of an of the community mm -hmm. uh, without having any expectations i think is a beautiful example of how the church can partner with communities yeah, yeah. i mean that that's a great example i mean she uses this language too in this chapter of the the work in the social order is an extension of the worship that happens in the church mm -hmm. um, yes. i think that's a really helpful way to articulate you know a lot of what you're saying there i agree um a lot with kelly but looking at it as well i would say for the church to be relevant or christian education to be relevant or in this present age mm -hmm. i would offer that we need a comprehensive understanding and ability to apply that comprehensive understanding of discipleship yeah um, and that would include human needs, personal needs, social needs, emotional needs, intellectual needs, physical needs, mental needs, spiritual needs, all the needs. That's very holistic. <laughs> comprehensive in that definition of um, discipleship. And one thing we talked about listening, you know, being able to listen to each other. But I would add prayerful listening. Yeah. You know, we're not just listening for the sake of listening, but we're praying as we're listening. You know, like what do that. we need to hear? And then what do we maybe need to act on? Mm -hmm. Then I think awareness is important as well. Self-awareness, awareness is also other awareness. Yeah. And then finally, accountability. Yeah. I would offer those things. When you say accountability, like, are you saying, like, who are you being accountable to? Like, the church to the community, the church to its principles? Can you flesh that out a little bit? I think accountability can be seen on a variety of levels. Like say we're accountable to our mission of our church. Mm -hmm. So we're accountable to that. And then say you and I have a relationship with each other. Then I'm accountable to you and you're accountable to me. Mm -hmm. You know, then we have our community. I'm accountable to my community. My community is accountable to me. Yeah. So then it's, it's like a holistic accountability, not just one-sided. All those layers of it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, and, and the accountability is in relationship, mm -hmm. not just... Well, my church says I should fast on Thursday, so I'm fasting on Thursday. You know? <laughs> and now you're accountable. You're good. Check it off. The right. Well, and the, the biblical term that I think Young better defines for us for that is covenantal. <laughs> like being in covenant with a variety, you know, these different levels, these different communities of people agreeing that we will work together for the, the betterment and the life sustaining and enjoyment and flourishing of the peoples in these communities were agreeing to do that together. And if I fail to do that, you will hold me accountable for it. Right. Yep. I want to close our, our time with the, the CARE acronym that's on page 82 and 83. I find this really helpful. I think it just reiterates what, what you just said, Rochelle, that she, she uses this, these four letters here, C, create hospitable space to explore Christian vocation. A, ask self-awakening questions. That's that awareness or what she uses, a conscientization idea. R, reflect theologically on self and community. And E, explore, enact, and establish ministry opportunities. I just really, I found this really helpful. Really, I really appreciate this acronym. I mean, I think it, again, very much parallels our philosophy of education, our philosophy of learning at Kuiper College. And what we want to do and what we actually make our students do and, and I would say what we are making ourselves do as educators in asking these kind of questions and seeing how do we live these kind of things out 
in our own vocations. All right, well, I want to thank you uh, all for participating in this conversation on this chapter, and uh, we'll pick up the next chapter next week with others as we continue on through this book, and eventually we will get to Dr. White's chapter, which I'm eagerly looking forward to, uh, to discuss that one as well. So thank you all for listening, and may the grace of God be with you all.